Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a suicide prevention resource for people who are navigating herpes stigma. Today's podcast episode features Planned Parenthood Columbia Willamette in Portland, Oregon. And I am here with two people who are going to talk us through the practitioner side of what Planned Parenthood does, as well as the educator side of what Planned Parenthood does. So I am going to have each of you go ahead and introduce yourself by name and title, and then go into what you do. And then we'll pass it around to the other person, just so people listening are familiar with your voice. And then we'll get into the discussion today. You first. My name is Lena Crandall, and I am a lead clinician at the Planned Parenthood East Portland location. I've been with Planned Parenthood for almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in June, and I'm a nurse practitioner. My role there is to provide care for patients. A lot of that involves STI screening and treatment, among other things. All right, let's pass it over to Olivia. Yeah, so my name is Olivia Jarrett. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a community education and outreach coordinator here at PPCW. So I serve Multnomah County and Clackamas Counties. I teach education in high schools, in trade schools, colleges, to uh, youth service providers, to parents, kind of wherever sex ed is needed. And I've been here for just over 10 years. Oh, so both of y'all been here for a while. Mm -hmm. Are there any notable changes that you can speak to from your own experiences from when you started to where you are now? Oh, yeah, I mean, a lot. Lots. Things change a lot. <laughs> yeah. Have you always had the same role? Let me ask you that first. I have not. Okay. Um, I started on a grant for the first five years and then transitioned actually to the position I currently have where I'm more connected to the health centers. Mm-hmm. Of course, COVID shifted everything, but before I was assigned just to the East Portland Health Center, so working with Lena's Health Center, I still do and also work with two other health centers. Okay. So that's a way that PPCW has transitioned to connecting health centers and education more than ever before. Pre-COVID compared to during COVID, how has your role really evolved or changed outside of having to do everything on Zoom? Well, we had some financial loss and so we lost a couple educators. So I've shifted now to taking over more geographical area um, and we're also shifting away with fewer staff, we can't do as much like sex ed directly in schools just because of time. And so now we're focusing on how can we build capacity within existing organizations so that they can support people they work with in talking about sexual health. So that's been a huge shift and it's been great. We've been doing that pretty strong for the last six to nine months. Okay. Yeah. Lena, what about you? What is the biggest change I've noticed? Yeah. I guess pre-COVID to COVID in your oh. experience. Well, there was a brief phase where we weren't seeing patients for routine screening or other routine visits. Like that was in the very beginning of COVID. We weren't seeing preventative care basically, which is a huge, huge change. That did not last long, luckily. And now my day-to-day life is almost exactly the same as before. We just wear masks. What was one of the major impacts that not being able to see patients for routine visits had? Well, it's hard for me to know exactly without looking at statistics from the public health department. People have asked me before if there's been a rise in STIs. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, (laughs) because people weren't able to get in for testing. However, at the same time, I think a lot of people were a little bit less sexually active, especially in the quarantine phase. 
maybe having fewer new partners. So I'm not sure if there actually ended up being any notable rise from the already rising STI stats. So the answer is I don't know. And I think we've caught up pretty well. Um, I mean, I'm seeing people for preventative care visits, you know, at a, the same rate as pre-COVID at this point, and it have been for a while. Okay. And part of what Planned Parenthood offers is preventive care, not exclusively for people with vulvas, right? Oh, yeah. We see people of all genders with all anatomies. And I ask that because it was actually... I think a podcast interview I did two years ago was with a guy who got tested at Planned Parenthood and he was like, I didn't know that Planned Parenthood served men. So that kind of also influenced why I reached out to you all to speak to some of the things that you all do. And part of that is that you can diagnose someone with HSV, herpes simplex virus, right? And that is part of what you do, right, Lena? Yes, I, I diagnose people with HSV every day. Oh, much. really? They, so well, it's that maybe common? Maybe not every day, but <laughs> yeah. very, very frequently. Yes, it's extremely common, so we talk about it all the time. At least talk about it every day. I might not make a diagnosis every day. That's a major part of something positive for positive people. I think that a lot of people who listen to this podcast have at some point found themselves either testing positive for herpes or dating a partner who is positive for herpes. Based on what you're saying and other healthcare providers that I've spoken with, herpes is common. Statistically, it's common. I'm curious to know what some of your experiences have been with delivering a diagnosis to a patient. Yeah, there's been a a wide range of responses, of course. Probably on the most extreme negative end, I had a patient start sobbing hysterically and say they wanted to commit suicide and ended up having to refer that person to an urgent mental health facility. I didn't know you could do that. Do what? Well, just uh, refer them to oh, mental yeah, health resources. Oh yeah, there's Cascadia on division. They take walk-ins for urgent mental health needs. So I sent that individual there. And then I've, on the other hand, had people say, yeah, I kind of figured it was herpes. Oh, not too worried about it. <laughs> so um, you see the wide range of things. There's very often tears involved. And I don't want to leave you over here hanging, Olivia. So as an educator, how influential, I guess, are you in Lena's experience with being able to provide educational resources to someone who has been delivered a diagnosis? So I don't talk one-on-one to people who just received a diagnosis. I don't give diagnoses or anything. Um, I teach groups of people. So... I have a way to get anonymous questions, which has actually been a lot easier in the pandemic because I have an anonymous like pull everywhere link and they can put anonymous questions in directly and I get them in real time. Whereas opposed to in the classroom, they would write on a piece of paper and then I'd answer it later. So I'm getting a lot more questions, which is great. So that is the only method of one-on-one, if you can even call it that, conversation I have with people in their specific experience. So it's more broad, right? Because I'm teaching, and I'm not just teaching about herpes, I'm teaching about STI transmission and prevention. So it's just a piece of a bigger conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're like on kind of opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of getting information out to people. Whereas Lena's like very, very one-on-one during diagnosis, I'm not at all. Okay, so as someone who's in the trenches, so to speak, <laughs> I hear from people who have experiences with receiving their diagnosis on all ends of the spectrum. Part of what started this podcast was the fact that people were expressing suicide ideation 
after the herpes diagnosis, enough for it to be noticeable. It's not like it was a one or two time thing. It was like, okay, is this a thing for people? So you have a resource on hand for if someone comes in and they do have that experience where they're in that dark place to where you can refer out to a mental health care facility. Is there anything else that you, as the nurse practitioner, are doing outside of just giving that referral? Like, so you deliver oh, diagnosis, yeah. they I cry, mean, and then you... Let me clarify that okay. that was an extreme example. Vast majority of patients, they may start crying, but after talking with me, after I talk with them for 10, 15 minutes, I'm usually able to calm people down, make them see that it's not quite as big of a deal as they thought it was, or it's more manageable than they thought it was. I would say with my experience, I've been able to help people to not leave the building in a panicked state. I don't need to refer to mental health often. Okay, that makes me happy. Yeah, good. However, I have had people follow up later and say, I'm really struggling with this. What other resources could you recommend? So people can follow up? Yeah, of course, yeah. I don't think people know that. Like when people leave the facility, they're like in shock, essentially. You're still sort of processing that news and you might go home and do some Googling, but I think a lot of us don't know that when we get home, we can call our healthcare provider and ask questions for educational resources that are needed. Yes, yes, you're right that a lot of people don't know that. I've also had people who were diagnosed somewhere else and then they come to Planned Parenthood and they're there for maybe a different reason, but they mentioned to me, oh yeah, I was diagnosed with herpes five years ago. And then I talk with them about it and say, oh, well, do you have questions about that? And they often tell me that the information that they received, it doesn't seem like they didn't get the full picture. So. I do spend some time kind of helping people relearn about herpes after their initial diagnosis elsewhere. That can happen. Okay. I'm going to pass it over to you, Olivia, and ask you how, oh, what were you going to say? Not to toot Lena's horn for her, but I think one of the things that is really powerful about kind of how Planned Parenthood is positioned and where the expertise lies is that, like Lena pointed out, she's talking about herpes all the time like diagnosing people with herpes and is only seeing people for sexual health, right? Whereas people, when they go to maybe primary care providers or wherever, those folks in those settings have a lot of knowledge, but it's kind of vast, right? Obviously, Lena has a vast knowledge also, but like is in the trenches, like talking about sexual health all the time. So one of the things that's really powerful about that is that like when Lena places an IUD, it's not like, oh, I haven't done this in a month. You know, it's like all the time, like, oh, I haven't talked to anyone with herpes in forever. That's not true, right? More sexual health experts in the actual health facility navigating these conversations and maybe picking up conversations where healthcare providers just haven't given the things that are needed. Um, so I think that's really powerful. And to get to the um, talk about referrals, since you pointed out that it's hard for people to really know what all Planned Parenthood does, there's so much out there about like Planned Parenthood only does birth control and abortions because a lot of people talk about that. That's what I mean, I really thought. like abortion, yeah. right? Um, and that's not, of course, we like proudly provide abortion. And also like that story isn't ours. It's something that people have placed on the organization. And so very happy that we can have the conversation about like what we actually provide. The thing about referrals is that in our database and like the internal stuff, 
um, if Lena's like, oh, someone needs a referral, she can type into this like referral manual we have internally and then get a printout of like, here are all the places in the different counties um, that provide this other type of care to at least give people resources that are around. And that works out, the one that you referred someone to is great because it's so close. The other thing that I do as an educator is I'm in the community at community coalition meetings, learning about what other organizations are doing in the community and like really reminding people that we're there, what we do and how closely related things like housing are to sexual health, right? Um, food insecurity, like all these things, mental health care, all those things are so inherently tied together. Um, so we're really trying to connect those pieces. That really speaks to uh, something that we touch on on Something Positive for Positive People often is that sexual health is mental health. And the more I talk to people, it's sort of transitioning to this sexual health as whole person health. But until we get there, we're going to stick with sexual health as mental health because I didn't already started the hashtag <laughs> and everything. Uh, but one thing that you spoke on is, of course, the uh, connection between sexual health and housing and how these seemingly non-sex related things play a role in a person's livelihood, their being, their, how it plays a role in their sexual health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that you touched on was in relation to um, how, you didn't say this, but here's how I heard it. When you see a specialist for sexual health, that person's gonna have a completely different experience to share than someone who may be a family care physician who's seeing children, babies mm-hmm. to adults. And as someone who may have been going to the same family care provider for the entirety right. of my life, when I get an STI diagnosis, I don't think that that healthcare provider sees me as the adult sexually active person. They may still be looking at me as Lauren's kid, who they've been seeing the entirety of their life. And there may be a little bit of shaming or stigma associated with speaking to me about sexual health. And there may be some, well, oh, are you married? Are you seeing one person? Like little things that you just won't receive in more of a sex positive, sex friendly, aware, uh, anti-stigmatizing facility such as Planned Parenthood. Are you able to speak a little bit to that in a sense of how you are in the trenches consistently speaking about sexual health versus someone who may not be? Well, I guess I've just heard it all. There's nothing that surprises me. I hear from such a variety of people. I, of course, am extremely open-minded working at Planned Parenthood, so I don't know if this is answering your question or not, but I can just take a, I do take a very sex-positive approach to answering my patients' questions and counseling them about sex and sexual health. Does that answer your question? It does, (laughs) it does. And it it more so speaks to uh, an experience that I speak on often, which is how when I was treated by my family care physician, there was way less conversation around herpes, for instance, because I was diagnosed with herpes nine years ago, uh, genital HSV2, and speaking to her was completely different than speaking to someone who was in a more like sex positive space where they saw on a regular basis people coming in for testing and treatment. And like I peed in the cup and I got blood drawn. 
that was it. There were no oral swabs, there were no anal swabs, there were no questions about the activities that were being done and an assessment for what my risks or my risks to partners were. And so what I'm, I guess, trying to get at is how the comfort of being able to exchange dialogue with the healthcare provider who is in this space is going to look so different Mm -hmm. than someone who is seeing you like generally. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would imagine there are plenty of family, family practice providers out there who, who, yeah, who may not be as comfortable talking about, okay, so do you have oral sex, anal sex? How many partners do you have? What percent of the time do you use condoms? Those kind of nitty gritty questions. Never heard that one. What percent of times do you use condoms? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a new one for me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of questions that can be asked and you have to get detailed sometimes. So very important to be comfortable talking about all that to provide good sexual health. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of it too is that, again, the more you talk about something, the more comfortable it becomes. So this is one thing that I talk about in the classroom with teenagers, and we talk about like how to fight stigma and how to have conversations about STIs. Is it awkward? Why is it? Like, what makes it less awkward? One of the things I tell them is the more you talk about something, the easier it becomes, right? So it might start out awkward, that's fine. Maybe by the fifth time you have that conversation about like, have you been tested or whatever, it gets a little easier. And then what it also does is when you're confident and you're talking to someone who's maybe back at like step one, right? Who's nervous, they're gonna pick up on like how relaxed you are and the lack of like stigma in your in judgment in your voice, and they're going to get a little bit calmer and maybe they skip to step five like you know faster than you did because it's just normalized around you. So like I would say, you know, a family provider might not have the herpes conversation very often and be like, oh, I've known you since you were this tall. And then won't ask the questions like you pointed out because then, oh, they're going to feel judged or maybe I don't want to know if they have oral sex. That's too much for me to know. You know, providers are humans and are going to have all that same stigma, even if they know the hard facts about medical care. Yeah. You jumped in at a really good point because I was going to add you in a little (laughs) bit to speak to uh, the education piece. So Sex education, I think that the way that people respond to STI conversations or sexual health conversations or sex conversations in general, even with a healthcare provider, is often influenced by the education that they receive. And in my experience, that education comes from primarily, let's categorize these as three places. For youth, it comes from home, it comes from school, and then the media slash community slash friend groups. And you typically step in at the education level, right? Mm -hmm. So are you finding that you have to do any combating of generalizations or stereotypes or misinformation that's received by the people you serve in their home life and in their communities, family, friend, or not family, family's home, uh, Mm -hmm. their friends, media, and communities outside of home and school? Yeah, of course. I mean, right, we're like influenced by all of those things and we might not even be able to tease out where the things directly came from. This made me think of, so one of the prompts I do, I just taught STIs on Friday to four classes. Um, Back to back? Yeah, it was a very, very exhausting day. (laughs) So um, 
one of the first prompts I asked in the SDI lesson is, what do you know about STIs? And that lets me just kind of get a temperature check on the classroom, what the knowledge is in the room. Do you say um, STIs and they know what you mean? I say sexually transmitted infections, okay. and I say STIs or STDs. I kind of cover all my bases. And then later, after that, I say, like, this is what an STI is, this is what an STD is. It's interchangeable. Talk a little bit about, like, language shifts for stigma. So anyway, I ask, what do you know about sexually transmitted infections, STIs, STDs? And it's a temperature check, but also I can clear up any misinformation. And I tell them that. I'm like, put anything in there that you know, you can say you don't know. If it's something that you're not sure if it's true or you know it's not true, but you hear it all the time, you can still put that in there and I will clear it up, right? And this last class, multiple people were like, bad. It's something really bad. And I appreciate that they put that in there because it's very real. That's what people think. And tell them, you know, I don't really want to put a good or bad label on anything. I don't think that's helpful. STIs are a thing that humans get. They're common, preventable, treatable. We're going to talk about the details there, right? And kind of try to move on. So that stigma shows up everywhere. I was going to ask you about, what was it? What was it? Um, some of the conversations that you are having with youth. Is there any shift in dialogue around infections, sexually transmitted infections and viruses, now that we've been two plus years in a pandemic? looking at how, uh, you know, I, I use this analogy of like masks being condoms mm -hmm. and social distancing being limiting your number of partners and uh, having to disclose to someone you may have put at risk for exposure. A lot of the conversation to me feels very similar. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know if in your education now, if there are any similarities that you're expressing in the classroom or the education setting or any questions even that are coming at you that are different that have been shaped by this pandemic? So I, of course, I've talked to people like it's right there of like, this is how we should have been talking about STIs forever and still should, right? In terms of how we're talking about COVID and who you've been around, has it been unmasked, whatever. I don't bring that up in the classroom quite as much to make that connection because I think the connection was kind of already there. Like I think teenagers in general like know about condoms, no condoms are a thing, so I don't really have to convince them. One thing I actually have done <laughs> is use the COVID vaccine as a way to talk about HPV vaccines because like we really need to do better and the rollout of those was really atrocious when it first happened. And some of that was lack of knowledge. Anyway, it's complex, but um, like, I think we should mandate HPV vaccines for people entering school like we do hepatitis B. So when I talk about STI transmission, how that works, and then I talk about prevention, abstinence, and what type of abstinence I'm talking about from sex, right? Talking to a partner, getting tested, and then talk about PrEP and PEP, talk about, um, so that's HIV prevention medicine, and then talk about the hepatitis B vaccine and HPV vaccine. And I say, here's HPV vaccine. This is actually our best defense against HPV for a variety of reasons. And then say, we have hepatitis B. Most people don't know they have it because they got it when they were babies and you need it to enter daycare. You need it to enter school. Like we have a vaccine mandate on hepatitis vaccines. And I don't say anything about COVID, but it's right there, right? Because there's this heated debate about mandating vaccines, but trying to like pose it as like, I mean, this is an opportunity. People are talking about vaccines and let's like use this as a way to talk more about HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the HPV vaccine is accessible and available to people with penises as well, right? Yeah. Sure, I mean, it's recommended for all children um, to get around age 10 to 12, hopefully before they're sexually active. 
but the FDA approved the vaccine recently up until the age of 45 for all genders. So anyone under 45 can still get that vaccine. Did you have anything else to add? Yeah, just, and this is kind of geeking out about sexual health a little bit, but when it was rolled Geek out, out. This is the place to do it. <laughs> so I believe it, it hit the market in 2006 and they were marketing it. They were saying that girls should get it. And part of that was because there was limited knowledge about like all the types of cancer that HPV could cause, um, but also the only way to test for HPV is with the cervix, right? Unless there's like a visible wart. Um, and so they were marketing it to girls and then conservative people are like, oh my God, you're just like telling our little girls to have sex. We're gonna give them this vaccine and then suddenly our 12 year old girls are just whatever. You know, like there was a lot of sex shamey stuff there, um, which is, mm, challenging because it's a cancer prevention tool and really like our only cancer vaccine right so that was rolled out poorly and that still kind of exists in our culture of like this idea that it's for girls but the reality is people can get cancers on like the penis the throat the anus the vulva vagina the cervix like all over the place right and the other thing is again you can only test people with cervixes so like someone can have it and pass it along to someone else and not know they had it. Sometimes the body clears it up on its own. Sometimes it can cause cancer or genital warts. Like how did we sexualize getting cancer, you know, or cancer prevention? Mm -hmm. It's because it's because HPV, certain strain, like certain types of HPV are sexually transmitted, but also it can prevent genital warts, which is what we think, you know, it's an STI. So the connection was just there. And it's too bad because public health professionals were like, oh my God, look, we can stop cancer. And then, you know, people view things through the lens they have with the worldview they have. And especially when you have it only for one gender and talk about girls and, you know, purity and all this stuff, and then they need it younger. As Lena pointed out, like you want people to get the vaccine before they're exposed because most people will be exposed to HPV in their life. So there's just so much morality wrapped up in the response that people had in terms of sexuality, age, and gender, all right there. Yeah. Uh, do you have any statistics that you can speak to in regards to HPV, such as maybe its prevalence in penis owners versus vulva owners, uh, who's getting vaccinated, who's not getting vaccinated against the HPV virus or anything? I don't. Do you know any? I don't know how we would have statistics on how many penis owners have HPV if we're not able to test them? So, so would it be like a thing where, let's say I'm seeing someone and uh, it's a vulva owner who is positive for HPV. If she tests positive and then tells me, mm -hmm. is there a way for me to come in and get seen, treated, anything as a penis owner? You can come in and talk about it. And people do that a lot. They come and make an appointment with me to for that exact scenario and I end up telling them that no, there's no way to test you unless you have visible genital warts. There's no way to know. The best thing you can do is get vaccinated and keep the dialogue going about HPV. It's, it really bothers me actually that certain individuals with cervixes who are, happen to be due for their pap smear every three to five years might be told they have HPV and then might feel obligated to disclose that. but everyone else who probably also has HPV but doesn't have a test, doesn't have a way to test, they just assume I don't have HPV. They might even put blame on someone, oh, you gave me HPV. Well, who knows, you know, um, that one's especially difficult because most people 
they don't know their HPV status. And it's, it's not something we recommend testing for in between every sexual partner. It's one more thing that appears to fall on the responsibility of vulva owners, in a sense, because now it's like, all right, you're the one who is at risk. As someone with a penis, I can pass HPV on to vulva owners if I'm sexually active with them. Like, I can pass it on without even knowing. Is that yes, right? Yes, that is right. I mean, a penis owner could pass it to another penis owner, too. Didn't know that. <laughs> we and learned any it. Gender, we learned any gender can have HPV. Mm-hmm. Um, like Olivia said, it can cause genital warts. It can cause cancer of the cervix, which is the most common type of cancer that it causes. And so that's the one that people know about. But yeah, it can cause vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer, penile cancer, anal cancer, throat cancer. Any genitals could, could get HPV. So luckily, those other types of cancer are extremely rare, but they are possible. And there's no way to test, you know, unless you have a, an, a, either a wart or a tumor or a lesion that looks like cancer, we can, we can then biopsy that lesion and find out if it's cancer or precancer. But without any symptoms, yeah, there's nothing you can really do except get vaccinated. Okay. And so this really just falls on, like, is this a conversation we need to have with partners alongside when was your last STI screening? Also, were you vaccinated against HPV? Uh, is that something that's encouraged? That's such a great question. and I'm sorry, I ask really hard questions. It sometimes. is a hard question, and I get this question from patients a lot too, and, and I don't have an exact answer. It sounds a lot just like with, um, with herpes, there's not a vaccine, but the most accurate testing that you're going to get is if the symptoms have presented themselves. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the CDC does not recommend herpes testing without symptoms. Is that right? Most of the time, there's some situations where it might be useful. Is that pregnancy? Um, not, I mean, pregnancy, it, depending on that pregnant person's situation, it could be useful, but... There are some situations like where it could be useful. Like say there's a couple, a monogamous couple, and one has herpes and one doesn't know. And the one with herpes is trying to make a decision of whether they want to take an antiviral every day. Some people don't want to do that. The one without whose status is unknown could get tested and what, oh, well, they have it too. What do you know? So many people have it and don't know. That could be useful for like in the beginning of that relationship for that asymptomatic person to be tested just so they know their status. It might help that relationship in terms of whether the partner goes on suppressive therapy, meaning a daily antiviral or not. Or maybe some people with multiple partners might have one partner with herpes and one without and they just wanna know their status. So there are situations where it can be useful. If someone wants the test, I will order the test for them. I always talk about what it might mean and how to prepare themselves for if it's positive, what does that mean for you? But if someone's coming in and they're just like, hey, I'm starting a new relationship, I need some routine screening, yeah, we're typically not testing for that if there's no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So the request needs to be made for a herpes test. Otherwise, you are not being screened for herpes when you request being tested for everything. Well, if someone specifically says, I want to be tested for everything, then I will give them the choice. But I just warn them, you know, I just want you to think about what's going to happen if you test positive with a blood test and you've never had symptoms and what is that going to mean for you? And 
the CDC has a whole statement about how there's no real change. People often don't change their behavior at all. And so does it make a difference in your life or in other people's lives? And you know, it's fine. If someone wants to be tested for it, great. I just kind of give them a little spiel about, all right, let's just prepare for what are you gonna do if it's positive? Okay. I have a question about that because I hear a lot of things. So the asymptomatic test that can happen is a blood test to test for antibodies for it, correct? That's right. I feel like I've heard of pretty high false positive rates. There can be false positives. Yeah, it depends on the, the index value, which is the level of antibody. There can be false positives, there can be false negatives, since it takes time for the body to build antibodies after an exposure. The viral swab is for sure more accurate. And that's if you're presenting physical symptoms, right? Yes, you can swab the, the lesion, the sore, so that's one of the things that, you know, we say get tested, you know, get tested between sexual partners and once a year um, in the classroom. But unless people ask specifics, I don't really go into it. But if someone asks specifics about herpes testing, because I think this happens a lot where people go to a provider, they're like, I'm going to get tested for everything. And a provider might say, you know what, a herpes test isn't really going to tell you if you have the virus or not. And people feel distrusting of medical care, which is like very real um, and totally fair that people feel like something's being withheld from them um, and shouldn't be. But then there's some nuance there, right? Like Lena's pointing out of like, it's not giving you a real diagnosis for it, whether or not you have it. And then what do you do with that information? And, you, and it also doesn't tell you what body part you have it on. Adjust the blood test alone. Right, so that's a huge thing. So then thinking about how is someone gonna use that information because I know a lot of people are like, I got the test, I pushed the doctor for it, and now I feel like I have to disclose, but I've never had an outbreak, mm -hmm. and actually they mm -hmm. told me maybe I don't have it, and now I'm just so spun out in my head yeah. because it's such a heavily stigmatized thing that then what do people do? Well, that's, that's exactly why the CDC states that they discourage routine screening for asymptomatic people because of the psychological distress that it mm -hmm. can cause. Well, I guess if you're asymptomatic and you don't know, then you don't know. So I guess there's no real... I mean, if the index value is higher than five, then you probably did have an exposure at some point. So you have those antibodies in your blood. Maybe you had an outbreak and you didn't notice it, or maybe you've never had one and you never will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say once you've got that knowledge, it's important to talk about it. I mean, the more people talk about it, the less stigmatized it will be. But I've also had patients, we were talking earlier about patients who got not the greatest diagnosis, like they, they didn't get all their questions answered. I've had people come in and say, oh yeah, my last doctor tested me with a blood test. I was positive for type two and she told me, or he told me I need to be on Valtrex every day for the rest of my life. And so I need my Valtrex refilled. And then I'll be like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about that. You know, you can be on Valtrex or acyclovir or whatever if you choose to. However, you may not need that and let's talk about that. So there are people out there who are getting this test, they're getting it routinely done when they have no symptoms, they're getting a positive result, and then they're being told, you need to be on medication every day. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to people who, after having received the diagnosis from being asymptomatic, they've gotten on the medication immediately, and then they started having outbreaks. Uh, not to say that this is something that'll happen with everyone, but is there anything to be said for giving your body an opportunity to respond 
to the infection or maybe that your body has been responding to the infection all the way up until the point of receiving a diagnosis. Is there a benefit to jumping on medication immediately after? Wait, you're saying that you've heard of people who got the positive blood test, started the meds, and then got an outbreak and while on the meds? started having outbreaks, yes. That's strange. My only guess there is that it could be a stress response. As far as I know, that's not a result of the medication itself. Mm-hmm. And this was just, I believe they got on it to minimize the risk of transmission. Sure. They didn't have a reason to be on yeah, it. Yeah, that's to... pretty much the only reason an asymptomatic person would be on medication, to prevent spreading it to others. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm hearing a lot, especially we talked about HPV, which is a complex thing, and then herpes, as we're pointing out, is complex and, and different in every human. There's just like no black and white to this. There's no binary, it's this or it's this. And in the classroom, it puts us in a very like tricky spot of how do you navigate the nuances, knowing that when you educate people, especially teens, but I would say everybody, saying very clear statements is very helpful. And how do you like balance that with humans are really complex and you know, like how many people are walking around with herpes and HPV and don't know it, will never have a symptom. It's a thing that happens to humans, like period, end of story. And then also in the classroom where people are like, oh my God, how do I, how do I not get this? And I want people to have sex if they wanna have sex. You know, I, that's an important part of life for a lot of people. So, and you don't want fear to infiltrate into that too much, but you also want people to be thinking through things that they're engaging in. And um, it's just all really, really complex. And there's no absolutes in this, which makes it really challenging. And then of course, navigating in the um, health center, people's responses, because you can't tell them for sure, like this is it and that's it. I had just on Friday, someone I was explaining herpes and, and then someone in the anonymous was like, wait, cold sores are herpes? And I had already said that multiple times. I was like, these are very common. And, and still, and then I, it's, it's just like, I could feel in that, like, oh my God, I'm a person with an STI. I've had herpes my whole life or whatever. Maybe never sexually active, right? Because we know that that happens. Um, and that stigma just feels so heavy. Um, especially for teenagers who are maybe just starting to like blossom in their their <laughs> interest in sex. Yeah, it's just really heavy and complicated. Uh, I want to take it back to you, Lena, and see, do you diagnose people who have oral herpes? Does anyone come in and go, oh my God, what is this? Yes, they do. Yes. A lesion on their mouth or throat. I've diagnosed, oh, on their throat? Uh, yes, you can get herpes in your throat. I've diagnosed herpes on nipples butt cheeks, thighs, genitals, cervixes, inside the vagina, on the mm. vulva, on the penis. It can be in different places. It's not just must be a cold sore or genital herpes. And then as you probably know, uh, genital herpes is very often herpes simplex virus type one, meaning it came from someone's mouth most likely. So yeah, it absolutely drives me nuts that there's so much stigma around this virus when it's on your genitals and not when it's on your mouth. It seems so unfair. And I talk to my patients about this all the time. One little anecdote is I had a patient come in. I just remember this one well for some reason, but she came in and said that her boyfriend was just diagnosed with genital herpes and he had it. He'd had an outbreak and she was absolutely furious at him. She was so mad. She, she said, 
he's, he's cheating on me. How could he do this to me? What a terrible person. And I asked her a few questions and it turns out that she gets cold sores regularly and she'd had one recently. And I basically told her it's very, very possible that you gave him herpes on his genitals if you engage in oral sex. And she said, yes, they do engage in oral sex. And so after this long conversation, and um, she ended up leaving the building with a completely different mindset and a prescription for Valtrex. So. Yeah, this conversation is sparking in me that healthcare in the communication that we have between the patient and provider, these interactions when there is welcomed curiosity and openness of communication, this is how we begin to destigmatize not just STIs, but sex and communication around sex and being able to care for our bodies and being able to care for loved ones as well. So uh, it sounds like you are doing some destigmatization through your work. Uh, and I'm curious to know, like, what guidance do you have, not only for patients who come in and see a healthcare provider, but also for providers? How can we destigmatize sex in the healthcare field? Just lots of talking, you know, talking about things. And, and as Olivia said earlier, the more you talk about it, the less awkward it becomes and the more easy it becomes. And um, just staying non-judgmental and uh, you know the second that someone feels judged they might shut down and stop talking and so it's so important to to make people not feel judged and no matter what STI we're talking about you know they're they're out there but getting the conversation going making sure that people have accurate information when talking about herpes specifically I always always make sure that people know that cold sores are herpes because in our culture that we live in, in our society, it, it doesn't seem like, at least from, from people I've, I've talked to over the years, it, it doesn't seem like it's a normal expectation that someone who has had a cold sore once needs to disclose that every time they make out with someone new. How is that fair? So why does someone with genital herpes, if that's what we're going by in society, then how come people with genital herpes who had an outbreak five years ago but don't have outbreaks now have to disclose that? I mean, these are just questions to get people thinking. But yes, I do a lot of work in my, in my practice to, to destigmatize this virus. Yeah, and then for you, Olivia, the destigmatization of sexual health and sex communication in the education space, what does that look like for you? Is it kind of the same thing, having conversations? Uh, to me, it seems like you mentioned um, temperature check with the room, mm -hmm. assessing where people are, who you're speaking to, and then inviting them to ask whatever questions they have. Like, is that part of your destigmatization practice in the education space? Yeah, definitely. And obviously, like, I talk about it a lot, so I'm very comfortable talking about it. Try to, like, you know, have some humor injected a little bit. Um, so, yes, all of that. And, and also trying to be really clear because there are so many nuances being really clear about people's rights. And just like, this is a common thing that happens, like it, it, it's okay, this is part of being a human. Also, one, one thing that Lena was making me think of when we talk about accessing sexual healthcare, of course, especially with teenagers, I want like, where can you go? We have so many school-based health centers in Oregon, which is like unreal that they can walk down the hall in their school and like get an STI screening. So like really, reminding them where they can go um, as young people and talk about county health department and Planned Parenthood, obviously, but talking about where they can go, what services they can get. 
and also kind of what their rights are in the room. And we tell them like, you have a right to be respected. You have a right to change doctors if you, if you had a bad experience. And also recognizing that's really hard to navigate the healthcare system. You might have a right to switch doctors and also that is still difficult. Again, balancing that nuance. And the other thing I say to people is it's talking about sexual health can be uncomfortable and that's fine. So if they have a question, they can write it down. So before I say, you know, before you go to visit, you can write maybe in your phone questions you might have that you can ask out loud, but you can also write it on a physical piece of paper and hand it to the doctor, right? If you don't want to say it out loud and then you can hopefully get your questions answered and that you have a right to them. And if they answer in a way that you don't understand, you have a right to ask. People feel like their agency is taken away oftentimes as soon as they enter the medical health field for good reason. Like there's lots of historical reason for that and current uh, reason for that, but trying to empower people in medical spaces as much as possible um, feels really important, especially for things like STIs. Mm -hmm. So here we have the educator, practitioner perspective. This went further than just talking about herpes and it went further than just talking about herpes stigma. We are in a sense speaking to this allyship that can be fostered in the medical space, in the educational space, but we as people who are consuming the information, we are pursuing it, we are educating ourselves, and we are learning how to navigate this space. Like, sex in itself is stigmatized. And again, going back to the whole sexual health is mental health, this speaks to how we care for the entirety of our being, how we care for partners, how we interact with other humans. So take this information. If you are someone who struggles with communication with partners or providers, just know that it's okay to be curious and you can always come back later and revisit those questions that you may not have known that you had when the opportunity comes for you to be able to do so. So if you're someone who's sitting around and like, oh, I didn't realize I should have asked this question, or I didn't know that this was a concern, then you can reach back out to your healthcare provider. If you don't like the answer that you're receiving from your healthcare provider or the sources of information that you are going to, then it's okay to make an effort to switch or ask questions from somewhere else. But um, yeah, my overall goal here is just for people to understand that the destigmatization of SCIs is also the destigmatization of, you know, just shameful acts or any sort of thing that we feel like we can't really talk about. Like, let's destigmatize open communication, right? Um, Elena, Olivia, is there anything that I haven't asked you or that we haven't touched on that you want to touch on? I would just add as a kind of maybe a last thought that at Planned Parenthood, um, we believe that having a happy, healthy sex life is very important. And we're talking about mental health here. Um, having a happy sex life is very important to one's mental health for most folks. And so if you are living in shame or in fear, um, dealing with constant, yeah, shame, fear, anxiety about STIs, you know, come, come talk, come talk to us, um, talk through it, and you may be able to have 
a happy, healthy sex life that then could help your overall mental health. So yeah, just tying it all together. Yeah, yeah. Olivia, don't yeah. feel like you have to add Oh, anything. I will though, right. of course. Um, I think the other thing with that is that stigma that we feel, it, we don't own it. It's not something that we created really, right? We get stigma from, again, you home life, school, media, friends, peers, everything around us. I don't think of how many herpes jokes end up in movies and TV shows, right? We hear that, it just kind of builds up. And so the stigma we're feeling, the shame about ourselves we're feeling, um, that's not ours. So like we can allow that out and like just consider, imagine what it would feel like to not feel shame and stigma around your sex life and around your body um, and how freeing that is and, and what that will do for your mental health. So just like, even if you can't get there yet, just, just consider it, just like imagine because we absolutely can have situations where people feel empowered and have happy sex lives. All right, thank you.